All right, let me invite you to take your Bibles and to turn them out open to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, you know, growing up, I had a couple of, there were several holidays that I really enjoyed. Two of my favorites were New Year's Eve and July 4th. Now, I loved those two holidays as a kid, not necessarily because of what they represented, although that's fun and everything. I loved those two holidays because of what was available to me on those occasions. Because it was on New Year's Eve and it was on July 4th when the fireworks stands would open up around the the city I was in and, and I could go and buy a bag full of firecrackers. And I lived in a residential neighborhood, but at that time, there was no laws or rules restricting where you could set off fireworks and do those sorts of things. And so we could set off fireworks in our driveway and in our yard. And so it was a blast for me and for all my friends in the neighborhood to get all of our fireworks and come together and to set them off. The problem is, being kids, we thought it would be fun to not only shoot fireworks up into the air, but to start shooting them at each other. And so we would turn the neighborhood into a war zone, and we'd have firecracker wars. And so we would throw black cats at one another. We would shoot Roman candles at each other. We would throw bottle rockets at each other. It was a, it was a wild scene. It was like the Wild West in my neighborhood with fireworks. And it was fun, but we, we would dress the part, right? We would put a lot of layers on. We'd put masks on. We'd put goggles on. We'd try to protect ourselves. But every now and then, a firework would, perhaps a bottle rocket, would get wedged into some fold in our clothing, and it would blow up there, and, and then it would blow a hole into our jacket and cause some singeing. But every time that, that happened, it, it wasn't that big of a deal because those fireworks, they could be extinguished rather quickly. You, you could put them out fairly fast. A, a firecracker, as you know, they, they, they start with a bang, but they don't last very long. There's a loud pop, a loud flash, but soon and very soon, they, they fizzle out and they are no more. And so I want you to consider that this evening as we talk about the nature of the kingdom of God. And as we talk about the faith God's kingdom requires. What we do not want in our lives is a firecracker faith. That is a faith that only exists on special occasions. That is a faith that may start with a pop, may start with a lot of enthusiasm, but a faith that lacks the necessary endurance the kingdom of God requires. You experience this tension perhaps in your own life personally. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you've experienced the gospel take root in your heart and it's been at work within you. And maybe In that initial moment where you put your faith in Jesus, there was a lot of enthusiasm. It was like a firework went off in your soul and a loud flash, a a bang, a pop. Something happened so that you're now trusting in Jesus. But over time, that initial enthusiasm or that initial passion or that initial energy began to wane a little bit. You slid into a season that was kind of dry. Maybe the words of the scriptures weren't popping off the page like they once did when you first came to faith in Jesus. Maybe when you gathered with others for worship on a Sunday, you you just didn't feel it as as deeply as you once did. And so you slid into a a season that required not so much a faith driven by enthusiasm, but a faith driven by endurance. But not only do you see this dynamic play out in the life of an individual when we come to faith and we reach these moments, that it's just kind of hard to follow Jesus at times and and our hearts don't feel like they're fully engaged in what we're doing, but you also see this on a church-wide level. 
when ministries and things begin to, maybe they start with a bang and they're really exciting on the front end, but over time, a ministry or the life of a church plant like ours, it reaches these seasons where endurance is required. Because maybe things aren't firing as, as ferociously as they once did. Or maybe the growth isn't as rapid as we might have expected stepping into this thing. And we're wondering, well, where is the disconnect? Is the kingdom of God really present? Is the kingdom of God really active? And in those moments, what is needed isn't so much a faith rooted in enthusiasm. What's needed is a faith willing to endure. A faith that corresponds with the nature of the kingdom of God. You also see this globally, don't you, when you consider the state of the world and, and you know the message of Jesus. You know that Jesus said when he arrived and he stepped onto the scene in Galilee, he, says, he said the kingdom of God has come. And so he declares that the kingdom of God has, has it showed up in the world. But then you look at the state of the world and there seems to be a disconnect. The kingdom of God doesn't seem to be on top of things. When you look at all the injustices and various forms of oppression and, and wars and calamities that are wreaking havoc on people's lives over, all over the planet, you see that and there just seems to be a, a breach between God's kingdom and the state of the world. And that perhaps keeps you up at night. It keeps you from going to sleep well. You you're worried about, well, who might be the next president of the United States? And you think about the prospects and you get a little nervous, perhaps. You get a little anxious. You're wondering, well, uh, what do we do with this? Or, Will my kids be okay 20 years from now? You hear about other things, other things that may keep you from sleeping at night when you think about the state of the world. And it's in those moments when the faith of endurance that corresponds with the nature of God's kingdom, that's when that type of faith is required. It's that type of faith that we want to exercise in our lives. So we want to think well about the nature of the kingdom of God. We want to pay attention to what Jesus is saying in his parables found in Mark chapter 4. I mean, this is what Jesus is talking about, essentially. He's talking about the nature of his kingdom. And he's, he's sobering his disciples up to what the kingdom of God is like. And so the passage opens in verse 26. It starts off with Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is as if a man, and then just kind of pause there. He says the kingdom of God is as if, and then he compares it to something. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples who first heard that phrase, the kingdom of God is as if. Imagine the types of images that might have popped in their brains. They may have heard Jesus, oh, he's about to compare the kingdom of God to something. Well, surely he's going to draw a picture of this mighty, militant, political leader who's capable of steering the masses and rallying unity in Jerusalem so that they, we might rise up and revolt against the Roman occupiers of our land. And so perhaps they started getting excited about what Jesus was about to compare the kingdom of God to, thinking he's about, he's about to blow everybody's minds. He's going to compare it to something extraordinarily powerful, something extraordinarily dramatic, something that is intense. And so you imagine their surprise and perhaps disappointment when he says the kingdom of God is as if a man is scattering seed on the ground. All of a sudden, the balloons deflate. The, the, the enthusiasm that was swelling, the hopes that they had, it, it just begins to wane because he doesn't compare the kingdom of God to anything extraordinary. He doesn't compare it to anything exciting. He doesn't compare it to anything dramatic. He compares it to something as mundane as a man scattering seeds on the ground. 
He doesn't compare. You, you would think the kingdom of God would burst onto the scene in the world and it would, it would take over the world in a dramatic fashion. You would think it, it would look something in our day like what the Beatles movement looked like in the 60s, right? Just taking the world by storm, capturing everybody's attention. Everybody loves the Beatles. Or maybe you would imagine him painting a scene like a Bernie Sanders rally. You know, feel the burn and really rousing energy for that dynamic. But he doesn't compare the kingdom of God to anything that was expected as it related to enthusiasm, as it related to excitement, as it related to the current drama of the first century world then, or the current drama of the 21st century world you and I live in. Instead, he says the kingdom of God is as if a man is scattering seed on the ground. And then notice how the man is described. There's really no adjectives that attach to this guy. You don't know what this guy is like. It's just an ordinary guy. It's a man. It's not the man. It's not someone described in a particular way. It's just a man scattering seed on the ground. And then I love what happens in the very next verse because after that happens, look at what he does in verse 27. It describes him then as going to sleep and then rising night and day and just going through this routine every single day, just scattering seed on the ground and going to bed. Getting up in the morning, doing it again, going to bed. You don't get a picture of other activities that he could have been engaged in in this moment. You don't see him plowing the ground. You don't see him tilling. You don't see him fertilizing. He's not doing anything but scattering seed. But you still see something happening. Because as he's sleeping and rising night and day, the seed begins to sprout and grow. So you get this picture of how the power, the germinating power in this moment isn't tied to the man scattering the seed. It's tied to the seed itself. There's a germinating power that's present in the seed. The seed has life sprouting power in its design. And so you consider that because what's going on is he goes on to say the seed begins to sprout and grow and then he's dumbfounded. He knows not how. He's scratching his head as this growth is taking place. He's wondering, I don't know how this is happening. And then he goes on to say, the earth produces, circle this phrase. He says, the earth then produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. He says, this thing is happening by itself. It's just, it's just occurring. And that's a phenomenal phrase to, for him to use in this moment. That The phrase translated by itself is, the same, is only used one other time in the New Testament. It shows up in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12, when the apostle Peter has been arrested for scattering the seed of the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He was arrested, put in prison, and suddenly the people of God found themselves in a helpless situation. There was nothing they could do to get Peter out of prison. They could not lobby to anyone. They could not pay anyone. They could not force Peter's deliverance or rescue from the prison. And so what do they do? The people of God gather together and they begin to pray. They appeal to God and they say, God, only you can do something about his situation. And then it says that in that moment, in Acts chapter 12, I believe it's in verse 13, where Peter's in prison and the scene says that the door to his cell just opened on its own accord. It opened by itself. God did it. So when you think about the nature of the kingdom of God, you think about the seed that is being sown in this, in this moment. Understand that the seed, as we said last week, 
represents the word, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the story of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his eventual return to the world. And the, the, the seed, the word, conveys that story. And, and you, you take heart in knowing that the gospel of the kingdom of God is inherently powerful. It is inherently powerful. There is a power in the story of Jesus that you and I cannot add to by how well we sow it. There is a power inherent to the, to the gospel of the kingdom of God just in the telling of the story, the conveying of God's love for the world in the person and the work of Jesus. There is an, an inherent power to it. And this is important because you and I need to be careful in how we talk about the kingdom of God. Because sometimes in the Christian subculture of this city and in the Christian subculture of North America, sometimes we can talk about the kingdom of God as if the kingdom of God is something we control. And we talk about the kingdom of God as though it's something we build. We talk about the kingdom of God, and I've used this phrase as something as we advance. But understand, in this moment, Jesus is saying that the power of the kingdom of God is inherent in the seed of the word. The gospel message that we have been redeemed by and the one we've been released by to take into the world. So we don't want to talk about building the kingdom or advancing the kingdom as if we are in control of the kingdom. There was a scholar by the name of George Martin, George Eldon Ladd, sorry, who wrote a really strong book on the kingdom of God. It's still influencing how people understand this concept of the kingdom of God or God's redemptive rule and what he's accomplished in Jesus. And, and he points this out. He makes this statement, and I want to encourage us to consider his words. He says, the kingdom of God is a miracle. It is the act of God. It is supernatural. People cannot build the kingdom. They cannot erect it. The kingdom is the kingdom of God. It is God's reign, God's rule. God has entrusted the gospel of the kingdom to people like us. And it is our responsibility to proclaim the gospel about the kingdom. But the actual working of the kingdom is God's working. The fruitage is produced not by human effort or skill, but by the life of the kingdom itself. It is God's deed and you and I need to take refuge in that reality and recognize that our role in ministry and the role that we play in this city isn't necessarily to build the kingdom of God and it isn't necessarily to plant churches we are a church plant and so this sounds self-contradictory but understand when we stepped into the city of Seattle we did not seek to plant a church because that's not our role our role is to plant the gospel. And when we plant the gospel, the kingdom of God grows. And when the kingdom of God grows, churches form. That's our role. Plant the seed of the gospel. This is why our vision, our mission, and our goal as a church here in the city is the Hallows Church exists to magnify and to multiply the gospel. We exist to magnify and to multiply the gospel through this city to the ends of the earth. And as we make much of the gospel, as we tell that story, as we scatter that seed, the kingdom will grow and churches will form. 
But our role in this space and our role in this place fundamentally is to scatter the seed, is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And as we do that, we rest assured that it is the word that does the work. That it is the word that does the work. The word builds the kingdom. The word forms churches. This is why we give ourselves to studying the gospel. This is why we give ourselves to proclaiming the gospel because the word does the work. Perhaps you're familiar with the book of Acts. The book of Acts chronicles the story of how the kingdom of God advanced after Jesus' ascension. When he turned and he took his seat at the right hand of the throne of his father. And then his disciples took the gospel and began planting that seed around the known world. And they went out to do so. And the whole book, the whole chronicle of the history, the way the church came into being in the world is because they planted the gospel. The book of Acts begins in Acts chapter 2 with one of the disciples, a guy named Peter, standing up. And he's addressing a large crowd that has gathered. And as he addresses, he addresses them with the gospel. He tells them the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. He talks about Jesus as Lord, that he lived, died, and rose again. And when he did, something happened in the people. The kingdom of God came in that moment. It took root in the hearts of many men and women in that space. The kingdom of God began to grow and churches were formed. Starting in Jerusalem and then moving all the way to Rome, the kingdom of God was advancing because they were proclaiming the gospel. And I love the way the book of Acts is written because Acts calls attention to this all throughout its narrative, reminding people that the kingdom of God grows when we give ourselves to the word, when we give ourselves to scattering the seed of the gospel. I'll give you four examples out of the book of Acts of how, this, how the writer, Luke, calls attention to this dynamic. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, verse 7, listen to what he says about the word there. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number, number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Again in Acts 12, 24, But the word of God increased and multiplied. There's an inherent power to the word. It is increasing, it is multiplying. Acts chapter 13, verse 49 and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Then you drop to Acts 19.20. I love this one. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word was doing the work. And what's, what we have to resist as we read the story of Acts is this a little bit of naivete that says, well, if we just become like the church in Acts then things will start happening, things will start flying. And we draw the conclusion of thinking that the kingdom grew and that churches formed rapidly in the book of Acts. And the reason why we think that is because we do not realize how condensed the picture is in the book of Acts. Moving from the beginning of that story to the end of the story in the Acts covers a long time a long timeline. A lot of days pass between the sowing of the seed and the growing of the kingdom and the forming of churches. It wasn't rapid multiplication taking place in the book of Acts. So we would be wrong to say if we just start acting like the church in Acts, then things will start moving swiftly. Things will start moving dramatically because that's not the case. It's a misunderstanding of the book of Acts. Acts is a condensed, it is a compressed picture of what happened in the first century. A lot of days, a lot of months, and a lot of years happened 
or took place between the major events in that book. And the reason why that's important for us is because we don't want to draw a conclusion that Jesus doesn't want us to draw about how his kingdom grows in the world, especially given what he says in this parable. Because we're affirming tonight the word does the work, yes, but we also need to affirm how the word works. And there's a subtlety to it. The word works subtly. You see this in the parable if you return to Mark chapter 4. You see a subtlety to how the word is working. The man is scattering seed. He goes to sleep. He rises night and day. So there's a perpetual deal of scattering the seed, resting and rising. It's, it's just happening like that. And there's a subtlety to it. Nothing dramatic is taking place in that moment. The sower is just going about his ordinary role and his, his ordinary responsibilities day by day. And at first glance, it doesn't seem like a lot is happening after he scatters the seed. But beneath the surface, where his eyes cannot go, there's a lot of things taking place. There's a lot of movement happening beneath the surface. And so we would be wise to consider its subtlety so that, we don't, so that we're able to exercise a bit of patience in the process. I'm reminded of my daughter Delaney, who when she was three years old, we went out back and we planted some broccoli Five minutes later, she's looking at it. Well, where is it? <laughs> like Delaney, it takes a little time. There's a subtlety to what's taking place, and the work that's happening right now is happening beneath the surface. It's a subtlety to it. It's beyond our understanding in this moment, but there's something happening that you can't see. There's something happening beneath the surface because that's the nature of the kingdom of God is the word does the work. It works subtly, but not only does it work subtly, it begins to work gradually. As that activity is happening beneath the surface in a subtle manner, eventually something begins to sprout. You look at verse 28 and you begin to see, well, a blade pops up. And then that blade turns into an ear. And then that ear becomes a full grain. There's a gradual process to the sprouting of that particular grain in that moment. And this whole idea of the word working subtly and gradually, this is so hard for us to get as Americans. We want everything instantaneously. We want everything dramatically. We have such a hard time conceiving of the nature of God's kingdom because this type of process is foreign to our sensibilities. We want things right away. And we want the best of whatever it is that we want. And so when things take time or when things unfold in a subtle, gradual manner, it, we lose patience. <laughs> I love uh, the comedian uh, Louis C.K. And, and how he talks about American impatience and our inability to, to just exercise a little patience about the things that happen in life and some of the technological advances that have occurred. And he tells a story in one of his routines. He talks about uh, the cell phone. He says it amazes him every time a person pulls up their cell phone or their smartphone and they start, start to get things to, to load on their phone, on this device, something that couldn't happen 20 years ago. And when it takes a little longer than expected, they get frustrated. And so he looks he, he, into this imaginary person. He looks at them and says, well, what, what, is the signal going to space too slow for you? Is the speed of light too slow? For you realize the signal is going to space and it has to return. Well, show a little patience. Stand in a little wonder and a little awe of what's taking place. And then he says a very similar thing about what happens on the airplane and, and airlines and flights. He says, you know, we, get, we talk about delays 
And we get frustrated and we get aggravated when there's delays in our flights. And he says, you know, a delay today may last like 40 minutes. But still, even then, you can fly from New York City to Los Angeles in five hours. He says, uh, 100 years ago, you couldn't make that trip in five hours. It would take years and many people would die along the way, right? It just wasn't that easy. So where's the wonder? Where's the awe? Where's the patience for the moment? And so he indicts the American culture with these analogies. And I think he's, he's really capturing the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age we live in, of impatience. An impatience that seeps into the life of the believer who grows weary while doing good. Who grows weary and frustrated while waiting for fruit to sprout from the seeds that have been planted. And if we're not careful, if we're not tuned into the nature of the kingdom of God, our faith will be like the firework that starts strong and then dies out over time. And so you see Jesus calling attention to the subtlety of how the word works and the gradual nature to how the word works. And he's cautioning us. He says, don't get impatient with the process because this is what happens when a church or a Christian gets impatient with the process. We create what, uh, we, we abandon the seed. Instead of planting the, the gospel, we create a synthetic type of seed, a GMO, so to speak, a genetically modified organism. We recreate the gospel, something that might seem to be more effective at reaching a person or engaging a person or arousing a positive response from people. And so we create GMOs when we become impatient. And Jesus is saying, look, of course you don't want to do that. You don't modify the gospel in order to make it grow faster than it inherently will and it inherently does. So don't take that route in your discipleship. Don't start thinking, well, the, the gospel mustn't be very powerful because I don't see it working in a dramatic way either in my life or in my church or in my city or around the world. And so we have to cue in to the right frequency. Otherwise, we're going to create a synthetic seed that ultimately does no one any good. So the word here works subtly. It works gradually. But then in verse 17, verse 27, my favorite phrase in this whole parable is when you kind of get cued into this dynamic of the word um, works surprisingly because as he's sleeping and he's rising night and day and the seed begins to sprout, he just throws in this little line and, and the man knows not how. He's surprised by what took place. I love that phrase because it's so, it's so out of, it just comes out of nowhere. He knows not how. He's surprised when the seed produces fruit. And so there's a beautiful uh, logic here. As the word works subtly, as the word works gradually, if, as long as you hang in and you understand the process of how the kingdom of God grows, eventually you will find yourself being surprised by the type of growth the gospel produces. I'm reminded of a Japanese student who came over here to attend the University of Washington. And when she, as she did, she got involved in the Ego Cafe, a Japanese student ministry. And, and she arrived, she, she began to hear what was being talked about at the Ego Cafe. She began to hear the story of Jesus, and it reminded her of a story she heard when she was in kindergarten. Because in Japan, the the presence of the gospel isn't very vibrant. It isn't very widespread. There's not a lot of easy access to the gospel. And, but when she was in kindergarten, she had a teacher who told her the story of Jesus. But then she grew up, went about her life. She didn't believe it. She just heard it. But when she stepped into the Ego Cafe, she began to hear the story of the gospel again. And it started reminding her of 
the story she heard in kindergarten. And she was like, wait a second, I think I've heard some of this before. So she began to explore it further and ask questions and have conversations with people like, like us who believe the gospel and who trust in the gospel. All the while, people are sharing the gospel. They're scattering the seed. She, she's not overtly believing the gospel. She's still hesitant. She's still resistant. And, but then eventually she graduates from college. And when she did, she had to return back to Japan. So the people who were investing the gospel in her were discouraged. They were uh, a little saddened that she didn't respond positively while she was here. They assumed that once she goes back to Japan, she wouldn't hear the gospel as frequently as she did here. And sure enough, that happened. She returned to Japan, and she wasn't exposed to the gospel as often as, as she was during her time at the University of Washington. And, but then eventually, she wanted to go further in school, and school actually put her in uh, Turkey, now, if you think availability and access to the gospel is scarce in Japan, just imagine Turkey. There's not a lot of gospel proclamation happening overtly in that country. But as God would have it, as she goes to Turkey, eventually she meets some more followers of Jesus, and she starts hearing the same story she heard as a kindergartner. She hears the same story she heard at the University of Washington. And as she's listening to these believers tell the story over and over and over again, the seeds being scattered and scattered and scattered, sleeping and rising, sleeping and rising, eventually something clicks, something takes root. She puts her faith in Jesus. She's baptized as a disciple of Christ. She returns to Japan. She shoots an email to those who run the Ego Cafe here just thanking them for their faithfulness to tell her the story and to assure them that their efforts did not go in vain. Now, you just think about the, those, that chain of events. You think about how the word worked subtly that entire time beneath the surface, starting when she was a kindergartner. The word began to work gradually as she, her curiosity and her interest in the gospel began to quicken the more she heard the story, the more she engaged people at the Ego Cafe. You think about how that gradual working eventually sprouted fruit, not here in Seattle where the gospel is present, but in Turkey where the gospel seems to be absent. That's when God seems to say, okay, boom, and the fruit is produced and her life is changed. A surprising outworking of the gospel. And Jesus is saying this is the type of life that we give ourselves to in the kingdom of God. As the word begins to do the work, it works subtly. It works gradually. And yes, it works surprisingly. The more steadfast we are at scattering the seed of the gospel, the more potential and the more opportunities for you and I to be surprised by that which God does. So that we wake up and we're like, I don't know how that happened, but it did. Thank you, Jesus. I don't know how that happened. I can't account for it myself, but I can attribute it to you because it wouldn't have happened otherwise. So you have this surprising nature to the work of the word happening in this parable. Therefore, our confidence as a church, our confidence in the world is reliant upon the power of the word. We give ourselves to the story of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Our confidence rests there, and it is reliant upon the power of the word. This means that our confidence as a church is not tied to me, the pastor. Our confidence as a church is not tied to any other person or any other talent or any other gift or any other skill that is present among us. Our confidence as a church is tied to the inherent power of the gospel. Therefore, we want to value gospel clarity. We want to champion the story of Jesus as often as possible. 
Now, one of the most perplexing things about the Gospel of Mark is that as you read through it, you, you might have already become curious about it because there are moments when Jesus performs miracles. He'll cast out a demon or he'll heal someone. He'll do something, and then people will respond positively, but his response is perplexing. He'll look at them and say, okay, now that you've seen this, don't tell anyone yet. Keep it secret. Not only when it happens when he performs miracles, when people come to recognize later that Jesus is the Messiah, he tells them, okay, keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone yet. And then even when the disciples, like Peter, Andrew, I'm sorry, Peter, James, and John, who witnessed what's called Jesus' glorification at the Mount of Transfiguration, this moment where his deity was showcased in a dramatic way, even then Jesus looked at the disciples and said, don't tell anybody yet. Don't keep it quiet. Why is that? Why did Jesus caution silence time and time again as he journeyed through Galilee and as he took the road to Jerusalem? Well, the reason I believe he cautioned silence is because he wanted us to be clear on what the word is. What is the gospel of the kingdom of God? The gospel of the kingdom of God is not miracles. The gospel of the kingdom of God is not necessarily Jesus is the Messiah. The gospel of the kingdom of God centers on the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. After that happened, that's when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, okay, now tell everyone. But he cautioned silence because he wanted his disciples to be clear on what the word is, clear on what the message is. And the message of the gospel comes full circle in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we want to hold that because when we talk about participating in what God is doing and fulfilling our role as disciples in this city, we're talking about sharing a particular message that centers on Jesus' death for sin and his resurrection from the grave. And after that happened, Jesus now says, go tell everyone. And this is why we are here. We are here to plant that message. We are here to declare that gospel. We are here to, to shout it loud. Because that message, ultimately, that gospel of God's kingdom, his redemption, his rule in the lives of people, because it centers on that, that means the gospel, not only does it have inherent power, it means the gospel is eternally relevant. The gospel is eternally relevant. Now, you look back at the parable. You drop down to verse 29. Jesus then talks about this thing called the harvest. And he says in verse 29, but when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now, the word harvest, that image, that metaphor there is used all throughout Scripture in reference to divine judgment. It's reference to the final day. So hold that image in your mind as you look. You don't have to turn there. It'll pop up on screen. But consider this reference in Revelation chapter 14. Because the idea of a harvest, it, it, it should excite many of us, but others it might not excite as much. And the whole idea of a harvest, this is one of those things that if we ever kind of do a GMO with a gospel, we ever try to genetically modify the organic gospel, this is probably where it happens where we don't talk about the idea of judgment, we don't talk about the idea of harvest. But you look at Revelation chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14, and you'll see how this harvest cuts two ways. It's a double-edged sword. This harvest represents salvation for many people. 
But on the flip side, this harvest doesn't represent salvation for many people. It represents judgment. Check it out in Revelation chapter 14. It says, starting in verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he, who, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. That is, that is a good reaping. That is salvation. That, that is a positive harvest there. Now, if the Bible would have just stopped then, we'd just proceed as is. But we don't want to create a genetically modified gospel. We don't want to adjust the gospel of the kingdom of God. So we don't want to just talk about the harvest as being really, really good. The harvest is also something very, very serious for many people. Because you drop to the very next verse, verse 17. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress. And this isn't fun, but it is the winepress of the wrath of God. The gospel of the kingdom of God is eternally relevant. Because it matters how people hear, how people harbor, and how people respond to the story of Jesus. It is eternally relevant for every person in this room, for every person in this city, for every person on the planet. The gospel of the kingdom is eternally relevant. And because of that, the word must be sown. As we sit in between the two appearings of Jesus, his first coming in Galilee to die on a cross and to rise from the grave, and as we anticipate his second coming when he will judge the earth, when we sit now in between these two moments, we must sow the word. We must scatter the seed. We must proclaim the gospel, tell the story of Jesus. And we must sow it widely. We need to share the gospel with as many people as possible as a church, as a family of faith. We want to broadcast the story of Jesus as widely as possible. Now, one of the challenging things about last week's parable, when you consider those four soils that Jesus laid out, understand that three of those soils responded negatively to the seed. They did not receive the word well. But one of those did. One of those produced fruit. One of those responded positively. Jesus says this was good soil. Now, you consider those ratios. We don't want to make too much of, uh, about the ratios because it's not the, the main thrust of that parable. But I think there's something for us to consider that of those four soils, only one of them responded positively. That's a 25% success rate. You're batting 250 if you play baseball. This means if we want to see the gospel take root and we want to see the gospel produce fruit, we must sow it widely. One of the reasons, perhaps, you haven't seen the gospel do much in someone's life, it could be because you haven't shared the gospel. You haven't sown the seed of the gospel in a person's life. 
If you're discouraged because it seems like everyone is rejecting the story and not believing or trusting in the gospel, it could be because you're only focusing in on one soil. You need to sow it widely. Sow it widely. Not just you as an individual disciple, but us as a church, as a family of faith, championing and proclaiming the story of Jesus. We want to sow it widely. But not only do we want to sow it widely, we want to sow it accordingly. Accordingly. And what that means is this. It means that the man in this parable, he's not described with any adjectives. It's just an ordinary guy doing his thing. And when we talk about sowing the word accordingly, I'm talking about you sowing the word according to who you are. Whatever your life stage is, whatever your gifts are, whatever your skills consist of, utilize who God has made you to be to scatter the seed, to tell the story of Jesus. You don't have to depend upon me to scatter the seed. You don't have to think that if you are to scatter the seed, you need a microphone in a congregation like this. You don't. Not everyone is comfortable standing up with a microphone and doing this type of thing week in and week out. Some people are. Many people are not. And so you think, well, what is my ordinary rhythms? What is my rhythm of life? Where am I sleeping? Where am I rising? How can I scatter the seed in the ordinary direction, in the ordinary rhythms of my life? You want to sow the word according to who you are and what your life stage is. And as you do so, understand that you're not comparing yourself to other people's gifts. You're not comparing yourself to other people's fruitfulness. You're not comparing yourself to other people's rhythms who seem to have more bandwidth, more clarity when it comes to telling the story of Jesus. You're not doing any of that because you're just focusing on who you are as a follower of Jesus. And you're sowing the word according to who you are, how God has wired you, how God has made you, and where God has placed you in this world. But not only do we want to sow it accordingly, ultimately we want to sow the seed as we do this, whether it's as a, as a stay-at-home mom with four kids, or whether it's a, a guy like me serving on staff at a church, or whether it's you working at Amazon, or whatever the case may be, you want to sow it widely, you want to sow it accordingly, but ultimately you want to sow it confidently. You can sow the word confidently because the word does the work. Now, in John chapter 12, Jesus talks about, he takes up this same image of seed and grain. But what's interesting is that he takes it and he applies it to himself. And there's a moment where these disciples, they come to Jesus and they, and he, they say, Jesus, or they ask, uh, we, we want to see Jesus. We want to know what he's about. Who is this Jesus? What is he about? What, is he, what does he come to do? And in reply, Jesus looks at them and he may, says this in John chapter 12. He says, well, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a reference to his crucifixion. The moment of his death has come. But then look what he says next. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you hear what Jesus is saying there? He's saying the seed, the ultimate seed that dies is himself. That he's going to plant himself into the soil of death. And when that happens, just imagine how devastated the disciples were. How their confidence was shattered. They hitched their lives with this Jewish rabbi and now he's dead. And he stayed dead for three days. Now in your mind, three days may not seem like a long time. But I assure you, if you banked all of your hopes on a guy who died, those three days would be the longest days of your life. There's a reason why in Luke chapter 24, two of his disciples are walking in discouragement and depression this road to Emmaus. 
They're, because their hope has been dashed. Jesus is dead. So those were long three days. But you also knew, know that Jesus had to die. You know the story of the gospel in this room and in this moment. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He burst forth. And the New Testament writers would tell us that Jesus is now the first fruit of the, of the life to come. He's the first fruit of the kingdom of God. His resurrection gives us a glimpse of where our lives are heading because of him. His death and resurrection. Now, it's a powerful moment because as you sit here today, there are many times and there are long stretches in our lives, in our ministries, and in the world. There are long stretches where ministry looks like death, where not a lot of things are happening. Life is hard. Reading the Bible is, is, seems, the Bible seems stale. Prayer isn't easy. It doesn't come naturally. The ministry of the church isn't firing on all cylinders. We're not seeing people come to faith every single day of our ministry. There are long stretches in life and in ministry that seem like death. But it's in those moments we take refuge in the nature of God's kingdom, understanding that there is coming a day when life bursts forth. The seed will sprout a blade. The blade will produce grain, and that grain will be full. So we take refuge in the nature of the kingdom of God, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing our labor in the Lord is never in vain. The word does the work, so we sow it widely. We sow it accordingly. We sow it confidently. And because of that, our relevance in this world is relative to our ministry of the word. Our relevance in the city of Seattle isn't tied to a particular style. It isn't tied to a particular personality. It isn't tied to a particular gift. Our relevance in the world is relative to our ministry of the word. In other words, and this may be some of the most important things I say tonight, so please tune into this. The ministry of the word is the one thing we cannot do without. Proclaiming the gospel, studying the scriptures, learning about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he will do. That is the one ministry we cannot do without. And here's the rub. Because some of us think that if we're going to be relevant in the city of Seattle, we must abandon the word. And so we engage in what everyone else is engaging in. Therefore, the church becomes a platform for social justice. And so rather than proclaiming the story of Jesus centering on his death and resurrection, we focus on other things. We find the pressure under the banner of relevancy to champion causes, political movements, political developments. Now, we can certainly speak to those things, but that is not those types of things are not the one thing our church can do without. There's only one thing we cannot afford to lose, and that is the ministry of the word. Our ultimate relevance is tied to this. So if all you do in your discipleship, and if all your thoughts about the kingdom of God center on social activism, social justice, going to the defense of the defenseless, taking care of people who cannot take care of themselves, if that's all you do, you are not as relevant as you think you are. The ministry of the word is the one thing we cannot do without. But here's the beautiful irony. 
It's the one thing we cannot do without. But if we give ourselves to the ministry of the word, we will not do without anything else. That's the irony. The word does the work subtly, gradually, and surprisingly. We sow it widely, accordingly, and we sow it confidently. And then the word begins to generate and sustain kingdom living. And the concerns of the kingdom are carried along, not because we're doing them to the exclusion of the word, but because we're doing them because of the word. The word is the one thing we cannot do without, but the irony is if we give ourselves to the word, we will not do without anything else. We will become the most socially active and socially engaged people in this city. We will have the resources needed to sustain the difficulty of caring for people who cannot care for themselves. We will find the anchor within us to receive rejection and not take it personally, but trusting the sufficiency of the gospel that is compelling us into loving others and serving others and ministering to those around us. Our relevance in the world is relative only and always to the ministry of the word. So don't let anyone tell you that if you are focusing on the scriptures, if you teach the Bible in the church, don't let anyone deceive you into thinking that is a, an irrelevant exercise that a church can do without. It's the one thing we can't do without. And when we have it, we will not do without anything else. We want the gospel of the kingdom of God. We want this message. We want this word sown in our lives. We want this word sown in our city. We want this word sown all across the world because the word does the work. Bottom line is this. Let's tell the story and go to sleep. Let's tell the story and go to sleep. Let's give ourselves to the gospel and trust God with everything that will come from the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you right now and I ask that you would reinforce and recharge our trust in the nature of your kingdom, our reliance upon the story of your son who lived and died and rose again. Would you re-energize our faith as we consider the nature of your kingdom? Would you make us a church that tells his story to as many people as possible? Would you make us a church that gives ourselves to the ministry of the word? And then I pray that your word would not allow us to be without anything else. Let your word produce fruit in and through our lives, our families, our church, our city, and the world. We pray this confidently, trusting that your word does the work and that your word will accomplish its ultimate and eternal purposes. We ask this and we pray all this in Jesus' name.